Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Peter Reed, uh, and I have the uh, privilege of having the very long-winded title of being head of atmospheric, oceanic, oceanic and planetary physics in Oxford, uh, a post I've held uh, for the huge duration of two months thus far. So I'm glad to be using the point at uh, this sort of this sort of level, and it's my pleasure and privilege to introduce our speaker this afternoon, Professor Fred Taylor. So Fred has uh, a long and distinguished association uh, with Oxford. Uh, he did his DPhil here, uh, working on um, uh, uh, infrared instrumentation for studying uh, uh, the atmosphere. Uh, and uh, he, uh, after his DPhil, he moved in 1970 to the Jet Propulsion Lab, uh, and that started him on his career uh, in the whole area of planetary atmospheres. Uh, he, he was the principal investigator on the Vortex instrument, an infrared instrument on the Pioneer Venus uh, mission uh, and uh, developed the instrument jointly uh, with people here uh, in Oxford uh, and that was eventually flown uh, to Venus in 1978. Uh, Fred returned to Oxford uh, in 1979 initially as acting head of department uh, when uh, his predecessor John Horton uh, uh, moved uh, first of all to the Appleton lab and then latterly to the Met office uh, and Fred became the full head of department uh, in 1984. Uh, since then, uh, he's uh, basically pursued a very active uh, career in the space measurement uh, of the atmospheres of, well, almost all the planets that we know to have atmospheres, including the Earth. Um, he's uh, worked on various uh, instruments uh, um, measuring the Earth from Earth orbit, uh, and he's been involved with a whole series of, uh, of some of the main uh, uh, planetary exploration missions that have been mounted by NASA and the European Space Agency, Galileo, Cassini, uh, three Mars missions, although only, only one of them so far has been successful, unfortunately. Uh, and latterly, uh, his, his great success was to be one of the major architects of the European Space Agency uh, mission to Venus, Venus Express. Uh, and that's uh, obviously an ongoing mission. And it's a particular, a particularly gratifying pleasure to see the, uh, this, this is one area which the Europeans have actually taken the lead from the Americans uh, in, uh, in, in studying uh, planetary atmospheres. So in many ways, we could see uh, Fred as being one of the key figures uh, in bringing Oxford into the, into the space age uh, 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 during the latter part of the 20th century and now the 21st century. So Fred is going to uh, educate and entertain us uh, this afternoon uh, about all sorts of aspects about the solar system. And so it's my pleasure to hand over now to Fred to, to tell us beyond the globe exploring the solar system. Uh, thank you very much, Peter, and good afternoon, everyone. I have a deep distrust of this microphone that I'm wearing. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay, fine. If, if that should change, please let me know. Um, right, well, um, the alumni weekend is all about global Oxford, I understand, various aspects of that. Uh, but in this hour, we're going to go beyond the Earth, uh, beyond the globe, and look at the Earth as a planet, and then look at the other planets and how it all fits together, see if we can understand our, our solar system. And uh, as Peter's already alluded, uh, nowadays we have modern tools for doing this, which are spacecraft which actually go to the planets and make measurements there. And that's one of the things that we do here these days. And that's mostly what I'll be talking about. Um, I find that uh, when I talk to somebody who doesn't know Oxford at all, which of course is not any of you, but uh, um, a lot of people think that it's rather odd that uh, Oxford's the sort of place that does this kind of high-tech work. They tend to think of us as being associated with, uh, with men in wigs from the 17th century and so on. And in fact, um, we have been doing this kind of thing <laughs> since the days when we wore wigs and uh, peered at the uh, planets through telescopes and tried to figure out what was going on. And I like to date the beginning of uh, planetary science at Oxford from the time of uh, Edmund Halley, or Hawley as he would have pronounced it himself, um, who was uh, very much an Oxford man. He was uh, an undergraduate at Queen's in 1673 to 76. And then he left, but he came back as a professor in 1702 and went on to do uh, some of the work that made him most famous. And the one that we, the, the piece of work that he did that we all remember these days, of course, is the um, analysis of the uh, orbit of the comet, which now bears his name. And um, this is a, uh, a painting, actually, but it's based on a photograph 
of the apparition of Halley's Comet in 1910. It reappears every 76 years, which was a revelation to the people in Halley's time, uh, as was the whole idea that you could actually work out the next appearance of something as dramatic as a comet. A lot of people regarded it with awe and superstition. The idea that this chap could, uh, at Oxford, this very clever chap at Oxford, could sit down with a piece of paper and a telescope and work out when it was coming back was, was nothing short of magical for them then. Of course, we see it as the beginning of modern science when we actually worked out things about our own planet and our own universe. And this was by no means the only thing that, that Halley did. Um, he um, made observations of, uh, of uh, Venus and Mercury, well, all of the planets actually, but uh, he particularly noted from the uh, crossing of, of the Sun, the transits of Venus and Mercury, uh, that you could um, work out the scale of the solar system from that, which again was an almost magical thing in those days. And uh, it works better with Venus than it does with Mercury. He tried to do it with Mercury, but you have, you have to wait 136 years for another transit of Venus, and he didn't live that long. But he wrote down how to do it, and, and he got it right. And from, from the careful measurements of the transit of the disk of Venus across the Sun, uh, you can work out the distance from the Sun to the Earth, for example. And uh, Halley showed how to do that. Um, he also uh, was, I think, the first person, certainly the first recorded person, to uh, get serious about working out the age of Stonehenge from the assumption that it was an astronomical observatory. Uh, and he, uh, he very carefully measured the alignment of Stonehenge <coughs> and worked out from that when it was built. Uh, he didn't actually get the right answer, but that might be because it wasn't very carefully built or aligned. We don't know whether that was Halley's fault or not. Anyway, he, again, he applied scientific method to, to, to a problem that everyone regarded with romantic superstition in those days. So he really uh, set the course that we've been on ever since. Um, he did, incidentally, also um, prove that the interior of the Earth is hollow, uh, but nobody's perfect, and uh, <laughs> we, we tend not to talk about that part of his work very much these days. So I thought I'd throw it in for honesty's sake. Um, what he never did, as far as anyone knows, it's not recorded, is uh, speculate about the day when uh, his successors would uh, be able to build a spacecraft to actually go to his comet and find out what it's really like. Uh, the exact nature of comets was not known in Halley's days. In fact, it's not really known now, but we know a lot more than he did. And uh, this is, in fact, a, a blurry photograph of the nucleus of Halley's comet, which is the solid part. It's only about 10 miles across, unlike the thousands of miles wide um, apparition that we see in the skies. Um, but it, uh, it's uh, got a lot of ice in it, which heats up near the sun and, and uh, escapes from the nucleus and uh, glows when it's irradiated by the sun, and that produces the phenomenon that we see. Uh, this picture was taken by um, uh, the first European spacecraft to venture beyond the Earth, a spacecraft called Giotto, which made an encounter with Halley in its operation in 1986. Uh, and incidentally, if, if, if you're wondering why uh, Halley didn't dominate the sky in 1986, it's because successive apparitions are much better than others. It comes around every 76 years. In 1910, when, when my picture was, the previous picture was made, uh, it, it passed very close to the Earth, and you get this tremendous spectacle. In 1986, it passed on the other side of the sun from the Earth when it was closest. And uh, you could see it, but uh, it wasn't as anything like as spectacular uh, as it will be in uh, 2051 when it comes back again. So if anyone's young enough to be around then, you're in for a treat. Uh, the rest of us have missed out. So, um, well, uh, Oxford's involvement uh, in, uh, in Giotto was, 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 was minimal because at that time we were already working on space instruments, but our focus was not on these exotic objects, it was on our own planet, the Earth. And I'm referring to the work that was uh, started by uh, my predecessor, John Horton, as the chairman re referred to earlier. Um, and this is his, uh, his first venture into space, Oxford's first venture into space. And this happened when, uh, when I was uh, John Horton's research student here. Um, he... Um, built an instrument to go on an American weather satellite called Nimbus 4. Here's a picture of Nimbus 4. It looks very old-fashioned these days. Um, and uh, uh, John Horton, Sir John, he is now, uh, was, was interested and is still interested, in, even in his retirement, in uh, the temperature of the Earth, the temperature of the Earth and its atmosphere, and what maintains that. Um, and you, you'll realize that that's a problem of great current interest, of course. Uh, but in those, these early days, uh, there were very few measurements to go on. And, and in particular, you couldn't get global measurements with a single instrument until the age of space uh, vehicles like, like the satellite. 
So he wanted to make some of the first measurements of the temperature of the Earth and the temperature of the Earth's atmosphere uh, from space, and he built an instrument to do it, which is one of these uh, little boxes here that you see on the bottom of the spacecraft, and it was called the Selective Chopper Radiometer, but we won't go into that, and it was launched in April 1970. So that was the beginning of the space age as far as uh, instruments built in Oxford were concerned. And uh, we're still in that business. Here's a more recent example, the Upper Atmosphere Research Satellite, also built by NASA, but also carrying a British instrument uh, developed at Oxford on board. This is a much larger and fancier satellite than the 1971, of course. Uh, it's more than 30 feet long and weighs nearly six tons. So an enormous thing, and the, it, the instruments are correspondingly much larger. Uh, here's uh, our instrument, which we call ISAMS, uh, being worked on by a technician in the laboratory. And you can see how, how big it is. Uh, and it has several miles of wire in it, quite apart from all the uh, other bits and pieces, which I won't take time to describe. But here you see it sitting just outside an enormous vacuum chamber, which we use to test these instruments before they're launched into space, but to make sure they can work in a vacuum and under uh, space-like conditions, because once they're up there, if they don't work, you can't go up and play around with them. You have to get everything right before you go. So that's what's happening here. And uh, so this... Uh, large instrument was launched in the 1990s. Um, I should tell you something about what it does, uh, but it's complicated. So uh, I thought I'd show this uh, little cartoon instead, which summarizes the scientific objectives of that particular experiment we were just looking at. It's measuring um, infrared radiation from the atmosphere and analyzing it spectroscopically. For those of you that are scientists, you understand what I mean by that. Uh, measuring the composition, the temperature, and various other properties of the atmosphere, and then trying to put it all together into an understanding of how the atmosphere works. And um, this particular instrument uh, was very much focused on understanding the ozone layer. Uh, many of you will remember the uh, panic about the destruction of the ozone layer in the 1990s. It was a very serious problem, and it still is actually uh, to some extent, but it's much better understood now so steps can be taken to control it, and it's getting better. Uh, at that time, we uh, didn't have the fundamental measurements we needed to tackle the problem, and that was one of the goals of this experiment. But I think you get an impression of the complicated nature of uh, what's required, and um, I won't go any further into that. I'm sure you don't want me to on a fine Saturday afternoon anyway. Okay, so we'll just leave it at that. Uh, so that's a brief look at um, how we study the Earth, our own planet, from space. Uh, I said we were going to go beyond the Earth and look at the other planets, so let's uh, start with Mars, which is the, uh, tends to be the planet everyone thinks of when you mention going to other planets. Um, as Peter said, we've, uh, we've been there three times with our instruments, instruments built here uh, in collaboration with our American colleagues. We built part of them and they built the rest and then they delivered it to NASA for us to go on the spacecraft. The spacecraft is built by NASA in America and they are responsible for flying it to Mars. And then once it's there, our instrument operates, makes measurements, and the data comes straight back down to us, and we do the scientific analysis on it. Uh, well, uh, in this case, uh, it wasn't quite like that. Uh, the instrument got built. Uh, it worked beautifully. It, uh, the spacecraft worked beautifully all the way to Mars. Um, when, when you fly a spacecraft to Mars like this, intending to go into orbit, you approach the planet very fast, too, too fast to go into orbit. And what you have to do is fire a rocket motor to slow the spacecraft down so that you match your velocity more closely to that of Mars and then uh, allow the spacecraft to be captured into orbit around Mars. What happened in this case is that when the mission controllers gave the command to fire the motor uh, to slow the spacecraft down, uh, everything went dead. The signal stopped, no, no data, no anything. And analysis later showed that the motor, instead of firing, had exploded. And so the spacecraft didn't slow down, it just blew itself to bits. And the bits carried on past Mars and were lost. So that was the end of uh, that experiment. Very disappointing. Uh, but you can't get discouraged in this business. You have to press on. Failures are part of the, um, part of the norm for uh, planetary explorers. Uh, you build the instrument again. And this is actually the second version of that instrument, identical to the first in the laboratory in California, with our Oxford-built parts inside it. Just gives you some idea of what they look like. 
It's not as big as ISAMS, but it's quite big. It weighed about 35 kilograms, and it's about uh, half a meter across. And this is an instrument to measure, again, temperature, uh, water vapor, uh, cloud and dust properties in the atmosphere. What we're after is weather and climate on Mars to compare to weather and climate on the Earth. So um, NASA built a new spacecraft to take it there. And this was almost entirely dedicated to our experiment. This is the spacecraft. This is our experiment down here. Um, and the, uh, this is a much smaller spacecraft than Mars Observer, but uh, big enough to carry our experiment. And we called it Mars Climate Orbiter because it was going to study the climate. Uh, well, that didn't work out either. Um, this is the uh, famous case that everybody's always heard of where the NASA engineers got their units mixed up. Uh, and they uh, obtained data from one of their contractors, which was in one set of units, and they assumed it was in another. And the difference, the difference was very small. If, it had, if the difference had been bigger, we'd have been all right, because somebody would have noticed. Uh, it was a subtle, small difference, and it was just enough to bring the spacecraft too close to Mars. So in this case, instead of going by and getting lost, it actually went into the atmosphere and crashed onto the surface instead of going into orbit. So, um, <clears throat> so no, no data again. Uh, it did make a kind of history. I occasionally have to remind Colin Pillinger that Beagle 2 wasn't the first British hardware to crash on the surface of Mars. We were there first by about five years. Um, okay, so um, uh, as Peter intimated, the story has a happy ending. We tried yet again, third version of the instrument on uh, a spacecraft called Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter this time, very, very large spacecraft, the largest spacecraft ever to go to Mars. Uh, and uh, we're just one of many instruments on that. But uh, this arrived happily, uh, fired the motor successfully, didn't explode, went into orbit properly. Uh, it's been functioning perfectly, and our instruments have been working very well and making all the measurements that we want on the atmosphere, as this uh, diagram uh, implies. So we're getting uh, lots of lovely data from that to this day. It's been there nearly two years now, but it's still going strong. This is uh, just a nice little NASA um, movie of the uh, spacecraft and the instrument. Uh, the instrument doesn't look the same as it did the first time around because we've redesigned it, but it still does the same things. Here you see it sitting on the spacecraft uh, scanning. It looks, uh, it looks inside the spacecraft at a calibration target. It looks down at the surface of Mars, and then it looks sideways to scan the atmosphere vertically so that we get data from different heights. And it's uh, fully programmable, controlled by a computer, so we can do all sorts of antics with it to get different kinds of data and different kinds of coverage. And it's uh, doing all of these things um, superbly well. Okay. Um, Oh yes, and there's another little uh, NASA cartoon showing uh, what the data itself looks like. Again, I won't uh, try to bore you with lots of um, detail, but um, what you see is uh, Mars in the middle rotating. Uh, the spacecraft is orbiting around Mars about every 90 minutes. Uh, there's a camera on board which is looking straight down. This is, this is the, what the surface of Mars looks like underneath the spacecraft, scrolling by. And then these colors are the uh, infrared radiation, the heat radiation, if you like, emitted from the atmosphere, which is our, the, the raw material we work with, is the infrared emission. And uh, you can see, for example, that, uh, the, uh, that it's warmer in the north. The, the red colors are, correspond to high emission, which means warm surface and atmosphere. That's because it's summer in the north and it's colder in the south. And uh, the instrument's going around scanning all these little lines and covering all the way around the planet, and then it goes around again and again and again, and the seasons change, and it's still going, and uh, then you go from one year to another, and we can compare one year to the next, and so on, and build up a picture of the climate on Mars. These numbers in the middle are the different wavelengths of the radiation, which we can analyze in different ways to get temperature, water vapor, cloud amount, dust amount, and uh, something about the composition of the surface as well. Um, so, so that's real data. Um, this is a uh, what we call a model, a computer model of Mars's atmosphere, actually based on the sort of uh, computer model that's used to do weather forecasting on the Earth. So the Martian atmosphere has a lot in common with the Earth's atmosphere, of course. Uh, and once we've collected plenty of data, uh, we can uh, work with groups that build these models 
and compare the data to the models or assimilate the data into the models as we do these days and improve them and uh, actually if we wanted to we could produce a weather forecasting model from Mars. Uh, that's, that's not basically one of our goals but that's the sort of thing that we can do with this data and these models. This one uh, is uh, from, from one of the European Mars models but uh, there are several of them around the world and we all work together. Um, right, I want to leave Mars now as time goes on and say a bit about Venus. Uh, this was actually the first planet we went to with one of our instruments um, back in uh, 1978. That, uh, we uh, were involved with NASA to build an instrument that was partly built in Oxford and that became the first uh, British hardware to go to another planet back in 1978. And, um, uh, Venus, of course, is the closest planet to the Earth. We, we all know it, whether we're astronomers or not, as the evening star, or at uh, different times in the year as the morning star, depending whether it rises before or after the sun. Uh, but it's, when, it, when it's um, in, in the sky, just after the sun has set, or just before the sun rises, it's very, very brilliant and very, very noticeable. And uh, by far the brightest object in the sky, um, apart from the sun and the moon, of course. And that's because... Uh, first of all, it's big. Uh, Venus is about the same size as the Earth, whereas Mars is much smaller. Uh, it's close, much closer than Mars, and it's uh, covered with cloud, which is nice and shiny and reflective. So all those things give us a very brilliant view of Venus, even from the surface of the Earth. This is the uh, Pioneer Venus spacecraft, uh, an artist's impression of it orbiting Venus with our instrument on board. It's our instrument there. Uh, and here's a picture of it taken in the laboratory when it was being assembled before launch. This is at the uh, Hughes Aircraft Company in Long Beach, California. But I won't say any more about this old experiment because there's a more recent one, uh, which is um, Venus Express. And the, and the Pioneer Venus, of course, was an American mission. Venus Express is the first European mission to Venus. And um, uh, that's of great interest to, to us, not only those of us that are working on it, but to all of you, because you're paying for it. Uh, Britain is part of the European Space Agency. We make a contribution, and then uh, our representatives decide what the agency is going to do with that money. And my job was to persuade them to go to Venus, and they agreed. And um, the kind of argument we made to get that uh, summarized succinctly um, goes as follows. Um, Although Venus is closer to the Earth than Mars, and actually resembles the Earth more than Mars, uh, you don't hear so much about it. And the reason for that is you can't see what's going on there, because this is what you see if you look through a, a pretty large telescope, not a huge one, but a fairly large telescope. Uh, you see a featureless crescent, and that's because Venus is covered with cloud. So for centuries, um, humans have had to speculate about what it's like underneath the cloud, and um, they've done so with great uh, richness of imagination and also with a lot of uh, very careful science, as, as, as careful as they could make it without any real data. Uh, and what they expected was something like this, uh, tropical forests. The uh, temperature at the surface of Venus should have, should have been uh, uh, roughly what it is on the Earth, maybe a bit higher, maybe a bit lower. People argued about that. But the tropical forest was the, was the favorite sort of concept. Uh, but when the space age started in the early 1960s, it turned out to be very, very different. And uh, the Russians uh, took the lead in the exploration of Venus and indeed were the first to land there. This is um, uh, a painting of uh, one of their spacecraft sitting on the surface of Venus. This was Venera 9, 1975. These were designed to survive on the surface for as long as they could. Uh, and as long as they could, worked out to be about an hour. Um, the reason being that it's incredibly hot down there. Uh, in fact, they made measurements during that hour that showed the temperature was hotter than the melting point of lead, uh, something like 450 degrees centigrade. And this is incredibly different from what everybody expected, not, not just the dreamers and the science fiction people, but the scientists as well, very different from what everybody expected. And we didn't know why. Um, this is, uh, incidentally, uh, from a later mission, uh, Venera 13 in 1982, landed on this uh, region called Phoebe, shown here from above, and here from the surface. So this is the edge of the spacecraft, and its camera's looking out, and you see this sort of blasted plane with these big plates of broken up lava, 
Uh, Venus uh, is very volcanic, it turns out. And uh, the surface has been covered with lava relatively recently here, and it, it's broken up into these plates. And then you see these low hills in the distance. This is one of the few views we have of the surface of Venus, because it's uh, very hard to hang around very long down there and uh, take measurements. OK, so the, the modern picture of Venus then, at the time we were proposing Venus Express, was more like this. Uh, volcanic plains, uh, huge mountains, bigger than on the Earth, taller than Everest, some of them. Um, uh, these yellowish clouds, the atmosphere turns out to be loaded with sulfur, which is probably coming from the volcanoes, because they put out a lot of sulfur. It has cloud patterns that resemble Earth weather systems, except they're different in ways that we've not been able to understand until recently. And the sun peeps through and uh, maintains this very high temperature. And the way it does that is via the CO2 greenhouse effect, which is exactly the same physics that we're worried about on the Earth. This is much worse than we have, but it's the same processes. Just a very bad case of uh, a CO2 greenhouse gone mad. So, uh, but how did it get that way? We, this, this, uh, we wanted to get from the 1956 picture to the 19, uh, what do they call it, 2006 picture uh, via a better under scientific understanding than we had. And that's what Venus Express was for. Uh, this is actually the reason you can't read this very well is it's a, it's a poor scan of the cover of the written proposal. Uh, so we won't dwell on that. It, it was made. It competed with a lot of other proposals at one. And ESA put the money into building the spacecraft. And it was actually built in England, believe it or not, uh, at uh, Stevenage at uh, Astrium, as they're now called. Uh, you might know it better as British Aerospace, which is what it was before it was taken over by a European consortium. Or if you're very old, you might know it as de Havilland. Uh, anyway, um, it's Astrium now. And uh, this, this is me with the spacecraft manager looking at Venus Express being built. So British spacecraft. Uh, when it was complete, it was uh, tested in France. This is a big vacuum chamber in uh, Toulouse where uh, the spacecraft was put through its paces before it was launched for the same reasons I mentioned earlier. And then it was launched uh, from uh, Baikonur in Kazakhstan by the Russian, uh, by a Russian Soyuz launcher, which you see here. So very international project. The reason the Russians launched it is because ESA uh, uh, paid them to do it. They have a commercial arm to their space program now, which is very successful. And they did a beautiful job. They launched the spacecraft. It uh, arrived at Venus right on time and right in the right place. The uh, retro motor fired like this. This was the 11th of April, 2006. Slowed the spacecraft down to the point where it was captured by Venus's gravity. And it's been in orbit ever since. And if you could go there today, you'd see it looking something like this, uh, orbiting round and round the planet, uh, making measurements of the atmosphere below and of the uh, interface between the top of the atmosphere and the radiation from the sun to uh, try and understand the boundary conditions and the behavior of Venus's climate system. Um, there was a big celebration when it got there safely. Uh, ESA threw a huge party at uh, its control center in Darmstadt, which is where they operate the spacecraft from. And they had uh, never seen such a big party, actually. I don't know how much champagne was drunk, but there was an awful lot. Uh, and then those of us that were involved had to get up full of champagne and speak to the media. Uh, this is uh, myself and my colleague Dmitry Titov speaking to the interviewer um, at, at that event. And um, it was quite humorous, actually, and I didn't think so at the time. They, uh, we were talking away, and uh, somebody had decided that it would be great to lower a model of the spacecraft down from the ceiling during the interview. And at the same time, they released lots of um, dry ice to make smoke, which they thought would increase the atmosphere. Uh, make it seem much more scientific or something. <laughs> so uh, you can't see it on this. You can't see the smoke on this picture. But we started getting engulfed by. They overdid it enormously. Uh, started getting engulfed by smoke, and then this this model started coming down in front of our faces. So, <laughs> so you know. <laughs> anyway, it, uh, we we were happy. We didn't mind. Um, there was also some reaction in the UK. You can probably guess what this is. Uh, I'm sure you recognise at least one of these people. Um, and again, um, 
I feel obliged to tell you what it does. Uh, I mean, I've talked about weather and climate and so on. I'd love to tell you lots of the details, but there, is, there isn't time. And again, uh, most of you want me to. Um, if you do, I'll be happy to afterwards. Uh, so here again is a, a cartoon that sort of summarizes some of the things that are going on on Venus that we're investigating with the spacecraft. And uh, volcanoes feature prominently. <coughs> And uh, the atmosphere, of course, and the, the clouds and um, the interaction with radiation from the sun and so on to understand the Venus version of the greenhouse effect. Um, we're also looking at weather on Venus because it's uh, an Earth-like planet, the same size and everything. It ought to um, have related weather systems and we, we knew it. We knew it has a complicated meteorology and we'd really love to understand it. Um, this is... Uh, these are pictures from the camera on the spacecraft that actually t taken as it approached before it went into orbit. And you can see uh, there's lots of uh, detail in the cloud, uh, things going on. And we've been um, looking at these now for the last two years, and we plan to continue for several years yet, um, investigating the uh, meteorological behavior. I'll show you just one very dramatic example of uh, meteorological behavior on Venus uh, uh, for um, illustration. And this is the uh, so-called polar dipole. Uh, let me explain what you're looking at here. This is, this is Venus. Uh, we're observing it uh, by looking at infrared radiation emitted from the planet. So where it's bright, that means it's hot. So this is obviously the day side. The south pole is right in the middle there. So we're looking down on the south pole, or, or up on the south pole if you prefer. The spacecraft's flying under the planet and looking up at the south pole. Uh, and here's the night side looking cold. Here's a scale. Uh, but the interesting thing is this double feature uh, circulating around the pole. And this has become known as the Venus Polar Dipole. And it's a curious phenomenon that we've been trying to understand. Uh, it gets even more interesting when you look at it close up. That was from a great distance. Once the spacecraft got close up, then you see a lot more detail in it. And it looks even more exciting. Uh, wonderful piece of uh, atmospheric dynamics. The, the South Pole is in the middle here, around about there. And then uh, this, this big bright feature uh, is, uh, is about uh, 2,000 miles across. It's huge. And it's permanently centered over the pole, although it changes its appearance all the time. And the, uh, the bright regions are regions we now know where the cloud is relatively thin. What you're seeing is heat from the hot atmosphere underneath coming through the cloud. So if you, if you like, it's a, it's a cloud mask illuminated from the back, if you want to think of it that way. So, um, so what is it? Um, let me show you one early idea that, um, for amusement only, this is not, this is not uh, hard science until we sort out what we're doing, but um, I like this, and uh, other people I've showed it to like it. This, is, um, uh, this slide uh, describes uh, one of the first atmospheric models, models of the Earth's atmosphere, to be solved on a computer back in 1960 by a clever chap called Ed Lorenz at uh, MIT in the States. And he represented the atmosphere by a set of simple equations which turned out to be very hard to solve. You, you need a computer, you can't do it any other way, believe it or not. So time-dependent. Uh, so he had one of the first computers, one of these enormous things, you know, full of valves that chugged away and was less powerful than your telephone, uh, but, but unique at the time, and he produced the solution. And you've probably seen this before. This is a very famous uh, figure. Some people call it the... Uh, uh, the the uh, butterfly diagram uh, in, in physics, it's known as the Lorentz Strange Attractor for reasons that I won't explain. But uh, this, is three this is the solution of those three equations, a simultaneous solution. So this is describing the Earth's climate, if you like, in a, in a crude kind of a way. Um, so what does this have to do with Venus? Well, uh, this is a three-dimensional time-dependent <coughs> diagram, obviously. If you take a slice through it, this is uh, called a... Poincaré section in the trade for any mathematicians in the audience. Uh, and here's uh, one of those. So it's a slice through the butterfly I've just been looking at. And if you remember the, uh, the Venus polar dipole here, the resemblance is remarkable. In fact, the Venus polar dipole is a Lorentz strange attractor. It doesn't necessarily mean it uh, arises from the same effects as are represented in these equations. That, that's, a, that's a different step that has to be made. But it's a, it, it's a uh, for an atmospheric scientist, it's a fun link between the very early days of atmospheric modeling and climate modeling and a new phenomenon that we've just discovered and are struggling to understand. Okay, um, 
time is, uh, is getting on, and I have to move across the solar system to Mercury and the Moon because we are currently uh, involved in developing experiments to fly to both of those. Um, now, I've been stressing throughout that what we're interested in is atmosphere and climate. So um, that explains why it's been uh, 40 years or so until we've started getting interested in airless bodies like the Moon and Mercury, or almost airless. Um, and the reason is uh, that we're interested in uh, volatiles, uh, which, which principally means water, uh, in the solar system. And it turns out that both the Moon and Mercury uh, have uh, what appears to be uh, very substantial deposits of water, H2O, in their polar regions, which are very cold. Even Mercury, which is very hot in the, in the equatorial regions, uh, is very cold at the poles because the poles point due north and due south, so the sun's always coming in sideways, and anywhere where there's a bit of a crater rim or something, the uh, ground behind that never sees the sun. It just sees cold space with no atmosphere in between, so it gets very, very cold. If there's any water around, it gets trapped there. Uh, and we know that happens on Mercury because we have dramatic images. Here's one of them. Um, this is, this is it's made of grainy, but it's absolutely wonderful when you, when you realize how it's made. There's the North Pole of Mercury, that red star. So these are craters that are near the North Pole of Mercury. Uh, this is an image uh, which was made using radar from the Earth, using a giant dish in Puerto Rico to bounce radar signals off the planet and reconstruct an image. And uh, it has a resolution of uh, one, about one and a half kilometers these days, which is a fantastic achievement. But anyway, the point of showing it is that um, you can see, here's, here's a, uh, a crater rim which is uh, uh, facing south. And uh, the, the northern side uh, is obviously getting some exposure to the sun. There's no ice there. Well, there's a lot of ice accumulating here. And very near the pole, the whole crater is shaded. So that the temperature inside here is very, very cold, about the, about the temperature of liquid nitrogen. Uh, and, and the craters are full of, uh, of what appears to be ice. And to produce a reflection like this, it has to be a lot of ice. I'm not talking about a little microscopic layer of frost. I'm talking about 50 meters or something, or possibly more thickness of ice, and you need a massive amount. And um, to cut a long story short, we have no idea where this water comes from. It could come from inside Mercury. It could come from comets impacting on Mercury. But um, there seems to be too much for that. Uh, it's a mystery. And uh, so we're going to, we're uh, working with German colleagues now on a mission to Mercury that's going to investigate this phenomenon. And, uh, but that's about 10 years away. It takes a long time to build a spacecraft and get it to Mercury. So much closer in time is the equivalent uh, investigation of the moon. And for this, we're working with the Americans again uh, on an infrared instrument to look at the polar craters on the moon and search for ice there. And uh, this is a spacecraft called Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is illustrated here. Very large spacecraft. Flies very low over the moon because you can do that when there's no atmosphere. It's about 30 kilometers above the surface. And it's going to do very high resolution investigations of the polar regions. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to solve or at least address this problem of where the ice comes from, which has implications for the whole solar system, including the Earth. Um, and this, this, again, I resort to a cartoon. This little diagram shows the, the six or seven, sorry, uh, uh, candidates for delivering ice to these airless bodies. We, we don't know. None of them seems to be um, uh, to deliver enough water to produce the effect that we see on Mercury, as we understand it at the moment. But one of them must do that. It's got to be one of these things, comets, uh, asteroids, uh, chunks of ice, um, uh, particles from the sun with chemical conversion or from the interior or from the outside the galaxy or something like that. Uh, all these things have to be considered and weighed up. So it's exciting science. Of course, the Americans are not doing it for exciting science. They're doing it because they want to put a base on the moon. And um, they're working very hard on that now, spending a lot of money on replacing the space shuttle and designing it in a base. And they want to know where to put it. And there's a strong case for putting it near the pole, especially if there's a nice supply of water there. Because if you have to take, if you're going to have a base there with people in it who are there for a long time, you don't want to have to carry all your water from the Earth. Um, so that's the main motivator for the American experiment. We're, we're perfectly happy to take the science on the side. 
Right, um, that's all about the Moon and Mercury. Um, I want to say a little bit about the outer solar system in the last five minutes or so, uh, because we've been there as well with our instruments. Um, in the 1980s, we uh, worked again with NASA on uh, an instrument to study the atmosphere of Jupiter. And this was launched on a spacecraft called Galileo, which you see here. Uh, Galileo was taken into Earth orbit by the space shuttle, sitting here in the background. So this was inside the shuttle bay, and it was released, and then uh, so the shuttle lights the blue touch paper and then retires to over here, and off it goes with this uh, secondary motor providing the boost to go from Earth orbit to Jupiter. And this is the spacecraft up at the top. And um, with this, we spent six happy years investigating the atmosphere of Jupiter, which is amazingly complicated. Um, as, as you can, you only have to look at a picture like that to realize it's a meteorologist's dream. Uh, and we don't know what all these colors are. We've been trying to investigate that. We're, st we're still not sure, actually, to be honest. But uh, we know a lot more than we did before the mission. And um, that's all I'm going to say about Jupiter, because I want to use the time I've got on a more recent mission, which is the Cassini mission to Saturn. Uh, having done, having done Jupiter, uh, we, we, the scientific community, wanted to go on to Saturn and see what's going on there. And uh, so NASA prepared a mission named after Cassini, the famous astronomer, um, which uh, you see here launching. Th this time it's launched on a conventional rocket from the surface. This is a huge uh, Titan rocket taking off in October 1997. It takes seven years to fly to Saturn even with a big launcher like that. And uh, on arrival, once again, you have to slow down to get into orbit. And here's an artist's impression of the spacecraft flying in over Saturn's rings with its uh, retro motor firing, which, uh, which it did very nicely, fortunately. Um, otherwise, it would have been another seven years. Uh, and that uh, spacecraft is working extremely well. Um, our interest in this um, has been not so much Saturn, actually. We're very interested in Saturn. But uh, Saturn has an amazing moon called Titan, which you see here, uh, to the same scale as Earth's moon. So it's much bigger than the moon, as you can see. And the moon is pretty big. So it's a very large satellite. It's, uh, it's bigger than Mercury, actually. Um, and, uh, but that's not what makes it interesting. What makes it interesting is that it has an atmosphere. It's the only moon in the solar system that does. And uh, not only that, but it's thicker than the Earth's, with a surface pressure of about one and a half times the pressure in this room. Uh, and furthermore, uh, the main constituent of the atmosphere is nitrogen, which, of course, is what we're breathing now. Oxygen is only 20% of it. The rest is mostly nitrogen. So uh, Earth and Titan are the only two planetary atmospheres we know about so far that are predominantly nitrogen. Uh, and as I've already said, the surface pressure is quite close to that of the Earth, much closer than Mars and much closer than Venus. Venus is too high, Mars is too low. Uh, Titan's just right. Uh, so it's a very Earth-like place, except that it's so far from the sun that it's very cold. That's the main difference. And it's shrouded in this orange haze, um, and we didn't know what that was made of, and we didn't know what was going on there at all, really, until Cassini arrived. And it did all sorts of wonderful things. I can only show you one or two. Um, it released a probe into Titan's atmosphere, which went all the way down to the surface and took pictures. Here's a picture during the descent, showing all sorts of interesting geology on Titan. And here's the landing site, taken after the landing, showing this rock-strewn plain where the, the rocks are blocks of ice rather than blocks of granite, as we would expect on the Earth. Uh, so our first close look at uh, Titan uh, the instrument developed uh, at Oxford, along with our American collaborators again, uh, was, was not on this probe, which was called Huygens. It was on the Cassini orbiter, so it's still operating today in orbit around Saturn and making frequent close approaches to Titan, which is when it does that we get excited because we're um, uh, probing Titan's atmosphere and its climate system and beginning to understand it. You can see uh, two interesting features in this uh, image of Titan, which uses long wavelengths to penetrate the clouds. And uh, this little thing here, which is magnified over there, is a <coughs> volcano. 
Uh, and this uh, big uh, bright feature down here is, uh, is, a is a system of clouds in the atmosphere, which are different from the orange haze. The orange haze is high up in the atmosphere. These are big, thick, cumulus-type clouds down near the surface, delivering weather and rain to the surface of Titan. So uh, nice, uh, interesting Earth-like features to investigate. The uh, volcano is not like an Earth volcano, of course. Uh, the lava that it spews out is ice, uh, and the gases that it puts out are uh, predominantly methane, we believe. And it probably looks a lot like this if you're down there looking. This is rather nice because uh, this is from a book by Patrick Moore uh, with illustrations by Don Hardy from back in 1972. And he shows, uh, if you look carefully, there's some astronauts here on the surface of Titan watching a cryovolcano go off. Uh, and here's the orange haze in the background. Now, I wouldn't say this is entirely scientifically accurate, but uh, it's not that far off, actually. It's quite a, quite a good piece of foresight for being so long ago. And uh, as I say, we've, we're now observing from Cassini uh, this, this, what appears to be this kind of behavior on the, on the surface. Um, we're also observing clouds. As I said, here's a closer view of some clouds. Um, this is just three frames repeated endlessly, so you can see the clouds moving here. And the surface features are these darker things. And they stay put, and the clouds move. So you know these are on the surface, and these are in the atmosphere. As I said, these are, uh, these are, these are clouds of uh, methane, CH4, which um, seems to have the same sort of role on Titan that water does on the Earth. It, uh, it produces clouds and rain and rivers on the surface and so on. Uh, notice this feature up here. Uh, this, is, this, this appears to be a lake, quite, quite a big lake. Um, we're not sure what's in it, but we're working on that. Um, what really stands out are these, uh, these river valleys. Um, so here's a coastline, and here's a river with tributaries. Um, and this, this is a cloud overlying everything. The, uh, the ocean part of this, so the sea, is, uh, appears to be dry at the moment. Uh, what seems to happen is that uh, when the methane, uh, methane doesn't produce uh, rain of a gentle kind like on the Earth. It seems to produce monsoons or nothing. So you get no rain for a large part of the season. Uh, we're conjecturing. We're not really sure about this yet. Uh, and then and when the season is right, you get massive, massive rains, which produce these channels with liquid methane flowing through them. And uh, then at that time, this would be flooded, but it evaporates much more quickly than water does on the Earth. So this appears to be dry at the moment. That's the sort of picture that's, that's building up uh, at the present time. But we're still going. Uh, new, new data is coming in every day. Uh, if you want to read about uh, discoveries from Titan, let me recommend this splendid book, uh, <laughs> which uh, came out uh, just last week on Monday. So I don't think they've got it out on the standout there yet. Uh, it was only released on Monday, as I say, by Athena Christus and myself. But it, uh, if you're interested in all the goings on on Titan, there's 400 pages of, of detail that I don't have time to go into today. Uh, just, a, just a bit more, um, a bit about the future before I. Uh, stop. Um, the uh, European Space Agency has really got the bit between its teeth now, having done missions to Comet Halley and missions to uh, Venus and several other missions that I haven't uh, talked about because we're not involved in them. Uh, but we are involved in ExoMars, which is the name that's been given to the first ESA Mars rover, which is going to be launched in 2012. It's being built now, designed now anyway. And uh, this, will, this will roam around on the surface of Mars, uh, drilling holes in the ground and chipping rocks and all those good things to investigate uh, Martian geology and uh, try to get some clues about the past climate on Mars. Uh, ESA has also grand plans uh, in the longer term, uh, a program called Aurora, which is not actually uh, building any missions to take humans to Mars, but thinking about it very seriously, doing detailed studies <coughs> and developing the technology which is needed. So they're pretty determined that uh, uh, in the next 30 or 40 years, we'll have a scene something like this. With, uh, uh, I don't th if they're smart, they I don't think they'll land in such rough terrain <laughs> as this. Uh, it'll be somewhere much more bland. But this makes a better picture. And here's, here's the, here are the European astronauts with their buggy um, doing analysis of Martian rocks and so on. And uh, it, oh, this is a very, a very serious program now. With, whether it'll uh, uh, 
get the resources it takes to do this or not is something that will be settled in the next few decades. Okay, um, that's almost the end. I, I didn't want to stop without saying a word or two about why we do all of this. Uh, it's probably obvious that it's great fun. Um, so that's good enough for me, but uh, maybe not for you. So uh, people always ask questions about um, the value of this. Isn't it terribly expensive? And what do we get out of it? And all this kind of thing. So I, I just throw in one slide to, to address that briefly. Um, for, for most people, actually, the exploration aspects of this are enough. We're humans, and we've always explored, and we've always found that it was worthwhile in the end. So we're going to continue to do it. And I think, uh, that alone is one good reason. But there are more detailed scientific reasons, um, which are really important um, to, the, uh, to the meteorologist, the climate scientist, and, and so on. Um, and that is uh, comparing the planets, especially the ones with similar kinds of atmospheres, and trying to get some leverage on our understanding of climate. If you just study one example, then uh, uh, you, can, you can get stuck in a rut with your ideas. If you, if, you, if you get challenges like Venus, which is so much hotter than our theories of uh, greenhouse effect and so on would ever have predicted uh, 40 years ago. And uh, even to this day, we're struggling to, we're only just beginning with data from Venus Express and other sources to, uh, to, to nail down the differences between the two planets. So um, understanding how planetary atmospheres work is a, is a, is a key task for us in, the, in, these, in university groups like ours. Uh, at the same time, we're interested in where the whole thing came from. I mean, uh, Titan may be a long way away, but it was created at the same time as the Earth, out of the same uh, primordial cloud that formed the Sun and all of the planets. And by studying all of them, we can get some idea of what the history of our planet and our solar system has been, which is... Uh, which is getting more and more important as we get short of resources, for example, but also we just like to know. Uh, and then finally, we can, uh, we can make better projections of where the whole thing is headed if we uh, study the solar system as a whole rather than just provincial features of the Earth and uh, maybe um, better understand our, our uh, human destiny through that. So that, uh, that really is the end, uh, except um, I've, I've again kindly sneaked in an advertisement from one of my books uh, if, you, if you want to read more about all of this, uh, this is a general book about the planets, which they do have on Blackwell's stand out there. Um, and um, you might want to, if, if you're interested in this sort of thing, you might like to take a look at that. Okay, thank you very much.